Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we made it to Friday once again. Glad you're with us. Your stool is ready. This is the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, crazy, and crazy uh, martinis for you today. Uh, Jim, let's start in Florida. We have uh, a number of uh, good martinis, actually, to kind of roll into one here. First of all, the Democrats thought they had a political winner by frothing at the mouth over what they called the Don't Say Gay Bill, which isn't that at all. It just means that you can't have a Curriculum on sex ed, sexual orientation, gender identity for kindergarten through third grade. Well, as we revealed a couple of weeks ago, uh, by about a 51 to 35 percent margin, Florida voters actually like uh, what's in the bill once they know what's in the bill. Uh, Now it's even better. Uh, Mark Caputo, who's uh, a Florida uh, political expert, reports on them a lot, certainly not a conservative, uh, says a new poll shows that Florida Democratic primary voters, Democratic primary voters support the GOP legislature's parental rights LGBT education bill 52 to 36. He says uh, Florida Capitol Dems opposed it and made it a top messaging priority. And he says this poll jibes with others that he's seen. If that weren't good enough, uh, we're seeing that Ron DeSantis is crushing Charlie Crist and Nikki Freed, the two top Democrats in the governor's race, with cash on hand. DeSantis at 81.2 million, Crist at 4.7, Nikki Freed at 3.8. And he's beating him handily in the polls at this point. You always like it to be bigger, but right now he's ahead of Charlie Crist by about nine points and ahead of uh, Nikki Freed by about 13. So, uh, Jim, uh, things are looking good for Ron DeSantis. And I think one of the reasons they're looking good is because he's doing common sense, smart things. Not just this, but I know there was a tension a couple days ago about a, uh, a piece of legislation requiring a financial literacy class in high school, which I think is a good idea. So uh, uh, his instincts, his policies, I think people like him down there, which they should. Yeah, there are a bunch. Uh, I don't want to use my own cliche of there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> but let's just say there's a lot to analyze here. First on the bill, again, I think specific questioning and specific wording the question makes a big difference. Unsurprisingly, Lots of people are like, yeah, okay, not teaching kids about sexual orientation from about kindergarten to third grade makes perfect sense. No objections. That has no sense. Now, if you just say elementary school and people start thinking about fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, maybe when they get a little older, it's more appropriate to discuss those topics. But most people recognize the grades that are covered by this legislation. It's just too early. Kids know very little about sex at that age. The the main thing you want to teach them at that age is, you know, to uh, uh, to be aware of what's appropriate, what's inappropriate predators, stuff like that. That's what's, you know, been in sex ed for a long time. That's fine. And oh, by the way, it's very important to allow parents to opt in, see the curriculum before it gets taught, allow them to opt in or opt out as they deem appropriate. Other numbers in that, that, you know, uh, DeSantis being ahead is really interesting. I think whoever wins the Democratic nomination in uh, in Florida is going to turn into the Beto O'Rourke of this cycle. Uh, Beto O'Rourke raised more money than anybody else had until uh, until in the 2018 cycle because everybody in the Democratic Party hated Ted Cruz. Ted, yeah, you can say Beto O'Rourke worked hard, he was telegenic, and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, it was like if there's a whole bunch of national grassroots Democrats who absolutely hate somebody. Two years later, it was Jamie Harrison up against Lindsey Graham, and Lindsey Graham won by 10 points, right? I think you're going to see a similar dynamic in Florida this year. There are a lot of Democrats who hate Ron DeSantis' guts. I think people sense that there's a good chance he could be a presidential candidate in 2024. And they obviously want to, you know, you want to knock him off. Based on what we see so far, 
they're not only they're not going to knock him off, they're not going to come close. And remember, this is a state where uh, DeSantis won by the skin of his teeth, but, you know, half of 1% last time. And Rick Scott won the governor's race by about one percentage point, both of the times he ran. So uh, in a lot of ways, Florida had been trending to the Republican Party over the last 10, 20 years, but it was always usually a, a very close fought, uh, tightly contested state. That may not be the case anymore. You started seeing that the Republicans are starting to pull away. And I think, you know, maybe it's time to retire the status of Florida being thought of as a swing state, uh, not just because Trump expanded on his victory in Florida uh, from 2016 to 2020, um, but also just, you know, what we're seeing in these House races, we see in these Senate races, state legislature, just top to bottom there. And if you'd said to people who covered elections or were following the elections after 2000 or 2004, that the, you know, uh, the recount, the Florida recount 2000 coming down to 537 votes, that someday, you know, Florida is going to be a reliable red state. And oh, by the way, Ohio is the same too. And obviously the 2004 election came down to Ohio. You know, it's kind of fascinating. Like, oh my God, Republicans are doing fantastic. Well, we've lost a little bit of ground in places like Georgia and Arizona uh, and a handful of other ones there. But still, that's kind of a really good sign for Republicans expecting a good year in Florida. Uh, and I think Republic Democrats are going to spend a lot of money in Florida that probably would be better spent in other states this cycle. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch uh, when people think uh, that the politics are static in a place. I remember remember 2002 because of all the, you know, the Sturm and Drang of uh, 2000 that everybody thought it was going to be nip and tuck for Jeb Bush's reelection. I had a reporter from the Orlando Sentinel who later became a pollster. The whole time he's like, this isn't going to be close. This isn't going to be close. You're going to be calling this in the first hour after the polls close. And he was absolutely right. But the national media had convinced itself that Florida was, you know, this razor thin margin every single time. Same thing happened in 2004. Karen Hughes ended up calling CNN and going, call it. It's a five point lead. It's like 98%. This is over. It's not four years ago. Uh, And so wrapping your mind around uh, how how the state changed. Is, is fascinating. And it's been 24 years uh, at the end of this term for DeSantis of consecutive Republican governors. Now, that includes four years of Charlie Crist back when he thought of himself as a Republican. But uh, it's been a long time since a Democrat actually won that race. So actually, it's 1994 when Republicans did so well everywhere else. Anyway, good on Ron DeSantis, uh, making good decisions in a lot of different places there. Uh, another good decision you can make is saving a ton of money right now on some of the most high-quality betting and towel products on the market. And that's through MyPillow.com slash Martini. Of course, right now their phenomenal deal is on their phenomenal towels. They're big, they're soft, they're fluffy, they get you dry super quick. Regularly $109.99 for the six-piece towel set. Now just $39.99 a set. The MyPillow six-piece towel set is made from cotton grown right here in the United States. Now, some other towels might feel good, but they don't absorb well, or maybe they absorb well, but they don't feel good on you. They have that lotiony feel or something. Well, every MyPillow towel is made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and soft to the touch. Every set comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. These towel sets are available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. For a limited time, get the MyPillow six-piece towel set regularly $109.99 for only $39.99 with the promo code MARTINI. Visit MyPillow.com slash Martini or call 800-874-0104. You'll also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow Giza Dream Sheets, and so much more. Get your six-piece MyPillow towel set for only $39.99 today at MyPillow.com slash Martini or 
Call 800-874-0104. MyPillow.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our first crazy martini today. And uh, Jonathan Carl over at ABC is the first one that I saw flag this, but uh, the media folks over at the RNC certainly didn't miss it either. Uh, Biden, of course, was uh, over, I believe, in Belgium uh, the last couple days, taking part in discussions related to Russia, Ukraine, and other issues of consequence to Europe. And uh, one of his comments was that, look, I never said sanctions would actually uh, deter Putin. Uh, Sanctions don't actually stop people from doing what they want to do, which is exactly the opposite of what his administration was saying leading up to the Russian invasion. So uh, hat tip over to the folks at the RNC uh, for putting this together. First is Biden yesterday, and then you have a whole cavalcade of administration figures from a few weeks ago from Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and other administration officials saying exactly the opposite. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. The purpose of the sanctions in the first instance is to try to deter Russia from going to war. The president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. They're meant to prevent and deter a large-scale invasion. We want them to have a deterrent effect. The sanctions are designed in the first instance to try to deter Russia from taking further aggression. As well as our efforts to uh, both try to deter Russia uh, through sanctions. So, Jim, if sanctions aren't meant to change anyone's behavior, what's the point? Yeah, I really want these guys to look up deter in a dictionary. <laughs> because like the whole point of deterrence is you want to prevent someone from doing something. Therefore, you have to do it before it happens. You can't deter something after it happens. You can only kind of reverse it or, or punish them for the actions they've taken. Now, I want to give a little bit of credit where it's due because there was, you know, based upon the uh, tepid response of the Obama administration when Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine, uh, the idea of, okay, well, are they really going to do anything? Do sanctions really affect Putin and Russia? Haven't they kind of, you know, built their economy so that it just doesn't pack as much punch as it does? Credit where it's due. This is the full Monty, so to speak, of sanctions against Russia. Just about every tool in the toolbox has been used. They've tried to shut off uh, every kind of currency exchange, every kind of way, not just, every, not just the usual trade sanctions, but they've made it very difficult for money to get in and out of Russia. We're working on trying to ban imports of Russian uh, oil and natural gas, travel sanctions, blocking Aeroflot from airports, uh, you name it, they've done it. And I'm, I'll give credit to the administration with it. That, that's a lot. And that's having an effect on the Russian economy. If you wanted to stop or prevent Russia from invading, you had to do that stuff before the invasion started. Maybe it's conceivable. You could say, you know what? Putin was determined to do this and there's nothing in the world the US could have done that would have stopped him from doing it. But if you were going to do it, you kind of had to take these big, dramatic, obviously visible and, and tangibly painful steps before the invasion started. Once the invasion started, there was no way the, Demo- the, the uh, Russians were going to pull back. There's no way they were going to start a little bit and then say, oops, never mind, we made a mistake, we're going back. You know, Once they were in it, they were going to be in it to win it. So I'm glad we're doing all these sanctions. They are packing a punch. They really are doing a huge impact on the Russian economy. Uh, you know, the usual, the rubles, values you know, plummeted. The stock market, I think, just opened a day or two. And it's very limited trading and all kinds of stuff. It's having a big effect, but it hasn't changed the thinking of Vladimir Putin. And I think the question I posed earlier this week is, okay, we're really hitting them with sanctions, but is it really having the effect we want, which is to get Vladimir Putin to say, oh my God, this has been a terrible mistake. What was I thinking? Uh, I'm losing troops left and right. My country's economy is getting crushed. This was total. Ukraine is totally not worth it. I'd better undo this. And look, maybe nothing's going to make him think that. Maybe he's not in his right mind. 
maybe he's, you know, uh, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs at this point. But we're kind of left in this bizarre state, which we have really hit him with everything. It's oppressing the average Russian. And um, the thing is, the average Russian isn't really our enemy. I mean, yes, maybe they've acquiesced to Putin's rule, but it's not like they have free and fair elections anyway. Um, and I just, as I discussed earlier this week, this idea of, oh, we're going to go after the oligarch. We're going to grab their yachts. Look, the oligarchs are in the position they're in because they're the exact kind of guys who would never stand up to Vladimir Putin. These guys are terrified of them. So it's really kind of tough to see who's got a veto or who can step in other than somebody in a security detail saying, I've had enough of this and putting a bullet in the back of his head. So all in all, I think the sanctions are, are you know, it's, it's the, the administration may have had the best of intentions. They may have tried hard, but in the end, it's not having the effect we want. And the idea of now saying, well, look, we never said it was going to deter his actions. Well, yeah, you did. And I think, unfortunately, this is not as successful as the administration would like to pretend it is. Yeah. And I think you make a good uh, point in contrasting there because you can only do what you can do. And then it's up to him whether he's going to still go through with it, which he which he did. So it's not to say that you can necessarily guarantee that they're going to be a deterrence, but that's obviously the point of them. So to say that they're not uh, just makes no sense. All right, Jim, on to our second crazy martini, third martini of, uh, of the day. And uh, this is the subject of the morning jolt today. And that's China with their really kind of fake claim over a long stretch after uh, COVID initially had its outbreak that they had solved it. They got to a couple thousand deaths and then it just completely plateaued, uh, claiming that they've had no problems since then. Well, They've got a problem now. They've got a lot of cases in a lot of the big cities. And as you point out, uh, whatever their mitigation strategy was, seems like they just postponed the inevitable rather than preventing the inevitable. And one of the most bizarre uh, things here that you point out, uh, kudos to you for digging into this, uh, is the situation in Hong Kong, where somehow 78% of the people aged 12 and older in Hong Kong had gotten both doses of the vaccine, but less than a third of those over the age of 80 we're fully vaccinated. So uh, I don't know if this is a survival of the fittest strategy over there, or they're just not really getting what's needed to the people who need it most. So readers may have noticed that I haven't written about COVID-19 as much as I used to. The pandemic is largely winding down in the United States. And I completely understand uh, if people are like, you know what, by the way, I had it in early February. And for me, you know, once I they finally got that little pink line to go away, I'm like, okay, Pandemic's done. I'm dealt with it. I'm tired of this. You know, let's move on with our lives. Now, I realize there were still people getting it. Uh, Obama just got it. Hillary Clinton just got it. Um, you know, I'm sure we're getting about 30,000 new cases a day, which sounds bad. But when you realize we were at like 800,000 new cases a day in, in uh, January, doesn't look that bad. I, I feel like we've um, this is largely in the rearview mirror. If you're getting it, take it seriously. Don't run around coughing in people's faces or anything like that. If you are you overdue for a vaccination or a booster? Go out and get them. All standard caveat supply, et cetera, et cetera. But for the last two years, we've been hearing a lot of like, well, look at this stumbling, bumbling U.S. response to COVID-19. While China, according to their official statistics, had only two deaths in the last year and a half. Well, lo and behold, you know, I, I know this is going to shock some people. Turns out the gov Chinese government lies a lot. No. And, you know, so all of their case numbers always seem very, like they've got 1.4 billion people, right? Even with really strict lockdown policies, the idea that they'd only have like, you know, three or four cases a month just didn't make sense. And in today's morning jolt, I kind of go through it. According to China's official statistics, they have the second lowest death rate in the world 
somehow Burundi has managed to do it even better. Um, so when, when China's success story largely depends upon taking the word of the Chinese government, I've had some people who are very smart people uh, say to me, well, Jim, there are enough reporters in China from Western news agencies that if there was mass deaths in China because of COVID-19, they would have noticed you're overhyping this. Well, I'm not saying they would have mass deaths, but undoubtedly they've got cases. And the other thing is that other countries that have had Chinese vaccines exported to them have found the Chinese vaccines did not work as effectively as the US made ones, European made ones. And by the way, even the Russian made ones. And you got to know, I'm not really in a mood to give the Russians much credit for anything. So if I'm saying that the Russian vaccines are effective, that means they really are. Um, but so the Chinese vaccines weren't that great against the original strains of COVID-19. Subsequent testing indicates they're really not all that effective against the Omicron variant. So, you know, China, we saw this during the Olympics, this whole idea that they're going to have this total shutdown. And for basically two years, the Chinese approach has been widespread testing, all kinds of invasions of privacy. But the moment somebody tests positive, like they shut down the surrounding neighborhood and they isolate everybody. And in some cases, in the last couple of months, they've shut down whole country, like cities, like 9 million people at a time. First, as you can guess, this is very disruptive to your uh, economy when you're shutting down massive cities. And lo and behold, it's not working because Omicron is about as contagious as the common cold. Human beings are going to interact with each other. Oh, by the way, even more so in a relatively crowded city, people living you know, real close to each other. Um, and the virus is going to spread. What we did in the United States, and look, we made plenty of mistakes. There's no two ways about that. But the gen, and I know everybody never wants to hear the words two weeks to stop the spread ever again. But if you're in this type of situation, the general strategy that the United States applied generally made sense, and most of a whole bunch of other countries did. Until you have a vaccine, try to minimize your exposure. Be particularly careful of the people who uh, are elderly, immunocompromised, comorbidities, have some reason to think, oh, if they catch COVID-19, they're going to have a real tough time with this and they might not pull through. Everybody else could be a little less careful, but just still rather not get it. And also, you'd really rather not get it in case you happen to spread it to somebody else because some people are going to be are going to catch it and be asymptomatic. Then once you have the vaccine, go get vaccinated. This is not going to guarantee you're never going to get it, as many of us have learned over the past year. It means you're not going to have a severe reaction to it, a life-threatening reaction to it. That puts fewer people in hospitals, fewer people in the ICU, and fewer people dying. You know, it was messy. It was complicated, but that's kind of what it's got here. And then here's the nice thing. Here it is, late March 2022, and we're largely done with it. China, on the other hand, is not done with it, and they're still seeing cities shut down. So I'd like to see this whole idea of COVID-0 get utterly dispelled. And I like everybody who spent the last two years saying, oh, what a fine job China is doing to realize that they fell for propaganda and that all that COVID-0 does is delay your reckoning with COVID-19 instead of uh, stopping it. Can we send that memo to the World Health Organization and uh, everybody else who took China at its word on the labs and everything else? Uh, taking China at its word is probably not a good general strategy. Uh, Jim? <laughs> yes, exactly. Jim, excellent reporting. Uh, if you haven't read The Morning Jolt, please do so. Uh, a lot of excellent research and analysis on this issue, as he always does uh, in The Morning Jolt. Jim, it's been another long week. Uh, have a great weekend. I'll see you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and please join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. 
Lou Elizondo joins me to discuss the effort to get the public more information from the government about unidentified aerial phenomena, better known as UFOs. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Lou also addresses the frustrating disinformation effort against him and others, and how this issue may even impact the war between Russia and Ukraine. Join us. Follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.